prior to 1996, mm. and for argument's sake, for the previous 10 years, Ireland was used as a kind of a conduit for the importation of cocaine. We must remember about the bales of cocaine that were found on the West Coast in various inlets. This is Felix McKenna, who was the Bureau Chief at the Criminal Assets Bureau when they went after Green's assets. In that period of time, a number of foreign criminals, principally English or European, moved into Ireland, bought property, and they settled here, and more or less set up a base where they were able to uh, move freely around. They were unknown entities in regards to the policing because of their <coughs> the way they were able to sh- shield themselves from uh, coming under notice of the Garvish Econa at the time. The likes of one particular individual, an English criminal, master criminal called Mickey Green, he came to this country after he was extradited from California and America, where he had been arrested in regards to uh, cocaine trafficking and was in the process of being extradited to France to f- face a trial there in regards to uh, the illegal movement of gold bullion and cocaine trafficking. However, he managed to uh, get off the plane in Shannon, settled in Ireland. He remains an A-list star of the criminal underworld. A gangster so wily that he travelled the world, amassed a hundred million euro fortune, and died not from a bullet, but from his love of a sun-kissed tan. Dubbed the Pimpernel for his ability to elude the law, Mickey Green's life personifies the changing face of organised crime over five decades. From the Costa del Crime to California, and the hills of Colombia to the rugged Irish countryside, he travelled the world while negotiating drug deals, bat scams and sensational robberies. Written by Jenny Friel, produced by Ian Mullaney, and edited and narrated by me, Nicola Talent, this is a three-part Crime World special. The Life and Times of Mickey Green. Part 2. Now in Ireland, the land of his forefathers, Green decided to stay put. But it was nothing to do with the pull of the old sod. We had a weak extradition law with France. These were the days before online news and Google, so he was able to live here fairly anonymously. And to most people he met, he was simply a wealthy, retired English businessman with an interest in horse racing. In reality, he was still successfully running his multi-million euro drug business. It's thought around this time he was behind a 50 kilogram shipment of cocaine found on a Colombian cargo ship that was detained at Money Point in County Clare in the summer of 1996, which was a huge story at the time. But back to when he first arrived here in 1993. Green saw the advantages to staying put and quickly set up home, buying a country manor called Maple Falls in Pitchfordstown in County Meath. It was the perfect base for someone like him, set on four acres of land and surrounded by high walls and trees. Although still on the run, Green was intent on living in the manner he had become accustomed to. The Maple Falls house measured 5,500 square foot. The entrance corridor alone was 62 foot long and it had five bedrooms, three reception rooms, a sauna room, a snooker room and a heated indoor swimming pool. Outside, there were stables and an all-weather tennis court. 
For nights out in Dublin City, he bought himself a two-bed luxury penthouse crash pad down in the Docklands with a top-of-the-range kitchen in shocking pink and a plush six-seater leather sofa in the living room. The two balconies overlooked the International Financial Services Centre, the IFSC, and it's here he entertained his criminal pals on big nights out, and there were plenty of those. In between socialising with the racing set in Kildare and Meath, he was a regular in the Berkeley Court and the Westbury Hotels in Dublin, and he spent long nights in the celebrity favourite post-pub club, Lily's Bordello. Now in his early 50s, he hooked up with a young Irish woman, Anita, who would become his long-time partner. And really, if things had stayed as they were, it's likely he might have continued living here for a lot longer than he did. It proved a fruitful time for Green, a good location to run his empire from and an easy place for his friends and family in the UK to come and visit him. There were also reports, many of them furiously denied afterwards, that he was building up some good contacts in the political world here attending fundraisers and getting introduced to some influential local councillors. He wasn't the only big criminal to make Ireland their base. During the 1980s and 1990s, a number of international crooks pitched up here and posed as successful businessmen. Here's Felix McKenna again. These criminals saw Ireland as an, an easy hideaway location for them where they could come in and disappear, buy property, and you must remember that it was only in 1994 that Ireland criminalised money laundering. But prior to the formation of the Criminal Assets Bureau, Ireland was a place where these people could arrive into, set up base and operate freely. They were able to visit hotels, the best of hotels, meet their colleagues from England and hold crime conferences in various hotels, as Mickey Green was renowned to do in the main street of Dublin and he would be visited by major criminals from the UK and Europe. Ireland was attractive for the international criminals in the 1980s because I think our police forces were way behind um, the likes of the, the British and the Americans at that stage. Eamon Dillon is an author and senior crime journalist at the Sunday World newspaper. Plus, you know, this is pre-internet days. You could turn up... Um, you know, with a serious reputation in, you know, the neighbouring country and arrive in Ireland and no one's going to know who you are. It's going to take a couple of years for your your reputation leaks out. It wasn't as simple a matter of Googling somebody's name and discovering that they're, they're actually somebody who's linked to a whole series of gangland murders and possibly the biggest ever bank robber that the UK has ever seen and involved in importing huge amounts of drugs via... Russian gangsters and Colombian gangsters and you know, uh, uh, via the Costa del Sol. So, I mean, it was simply a matter of, uh, I think, weak legislation. People didn't know who they were. And, and really, I think at that stage, you, you know, our security forces were, were all about dealing with the IRA and the troubles at that stage. The most infamous of these was my old friend Johnny Morrissey, who was only recently picked up by Spanish police for his alleged connections to the Kinahan cartel. Like Mickey Green, Morrissey has an Irish passport and for years he was deeply involved in organised crime in the UK from his home in Manchester. 
It's worth reminding ourselves maybe about Johnny's sojourn here, especially as he's now resting in a Spanish jail, suspected of helping to run Europe's biggest narco bank, which was laundering more than 300 million euro worth of drug money a year. He himself had the reputation and, and the investigation disclosed that he was a suspect for something in the region of 12 to 15 murders in England. He was originally from, I think, Manchester, but he was known within the English underworld as a hitman. When people had to be intimidated, John Morrissey was an ideal man down in Cork who would be brought in by the likes of Georgie Mitchell to intimidate people. Morrissey had first landed in the yachty haven of Kinsale in Cork in the mid-1990s. In a town full of transient wealthy boat owners, his arrival went largely unnoticed until that was he started throwing some serious cash around the place. Amongst the colourful narrow streets in the small town, he found a two-storey over-basement building, just yards from the waterfront, where he told locals he planned to open a restaurant. There's never been anything subtle or low-key about Johnny Morrissey. He poured buckets of money into his new venture. It was rumoured he spent at least €600,000 on kitting it out, a huge sum at that time, remember, and all of it was in cash. He paid everyone, from the painters to the plumbers to the serving staff, in notes pulled from his bulging wallet. And pretty soon, he'd earned himself a brand new nickname, Johnny Cash. He set up a base in uh, Cork, Cove. He opened a restaurant. He did some repair work to it and uh, was running it as we would say, a successful restaurant. Loud and gregarious, he became a familiar figure around the town, giving generously to local charities and fundraisers. In fact, he got another nickname thanks to his habit of paying his bar tabs in British currency, and that was Sterling Moss after the British racing car driver. I, you know, there was great stories about him, you know, with a, a suitcase with £600,000 of cash in a, in, a, in a suitcase, which he'd pop open and, you know, pay off whatever builder had been doing work for him. Evenings were spent welcoming diners to his restaurant or in the local bars, while days were spent out at sea on his high-powered fishing boat, which was later suspected of being a ruse to land cocaine on our shores. He, he was absolutely, you know, the kind of the life and soul of, of the well-heeled party set, you know, who enjoyed the kind of the yachting lifestyle and all the rest. For a while, nobody had a clue that this latest arrival in their town was wanted for questioning by police across Europe in relation to a string of violent gangland crimes. And his high-end restaurant, the Annalise, might have become a firm favourite on the emerging Cork foodie trail, except that 1996 saw the establishment of the Criminal Assets Bureau, which marked the beginning of the end of Morrissey's Irish jaunt. Former cab boss Felix McKenna told the Sunday World how Morrissey's love of spending first drew their attention to him. He wasn't shy at all. He was a man about town, McKenna explained. He had the spondulux in his pocket to flash and he wasn't afraid of flashing it. Some checks into his background and a bulletin from Interpol revealed his sinister background. His reputation was that he was a hitman for the gangsters in England, more so than in Ireland, and that's one of the reasons he came to Kinsale, McKenna told the newspaper. Morrissey was swiftly added to the cab's hit list, and by the end of 1997, he'd been served with a tax demand for over €100,000. His property was searched, and officers seized much of his valuable assets, including lots of money and cars and jewellery worth several hundred thousand euros. But Johnny Cash was not amused. 
nor was he a guy to take things lying down. And in a frightening turn of events, Gardy learned that he planned to assassinate the legal officer who had signed off on the tax demand on behalf of the state. That was well-known Cork solicitor Barry Galvin. We, we realised it early and th- thus we took action against John Morrissey. Because of our action, he then, shall we say, counted his figures and done the sensible thing of leaving Ireland immediately and not coming back. At the time... Cal were satisfied that they had planned to cause Barry Galvin uh, personal harm. It shows it shows that he was a conduit for other Irish criminals to intimidate the likes of Barry Galvin mm. or intimidate other bureau officers. Had something like that occurred at the time, it would have caused a massive amount of fear factor mm. within the organisations and within law enforcement in Ireland and the people that support law enforcement. Because you only got to think back to when Martin Cahill, a, a.k.a. the general, kidnapped an individual from the Department of Social Welfare from his home because that man made a decision to put off Martin Cahill of social welfare money and he shot him in his knees. He kneecapped him. That has a way of intimidating people that walk in various sectors of society big time Thankfully the plot to kill Galvin was stopped in its tracks Morrissey fled to Spain where he's remained ever since In a further twist that relates to Mickey Green's Irish experience it's recently emerged that during his time here Morrissey paid tens of thousands of pounds in protection money to the provisional IRA, a fact that would help influence Green's decision to move on. Morrissey's lavish spending in Kinsale had brought him to the attention of the terrorist group, who did their own digging and discovered his true identity, long before the Gardaí sussed out who he was. It was the days before the Good Friday Agreement and the IRA were still a powerful force both north and south of the border. Big drug traffickers faced either being killed, seriously harmed, driven out of the country by the provost, or, as in Morrissey's case, forced to pay protection money. It's believed his handler was Mick Murray, a senior IRA member who's been named as one of the men behind the Birmingham pub bombings of 1974. And it's claimed that Murray, one of the IRA's most feared volunteers, regularly collected cash from Morrissey, and that the pair were monitored during their meetings by undercover Gardaí. Murray would travel to meet Morrissey every few months, and on each occasion, 10 grand or so would be donated by Morrissey to the, the cause. This money often ended up in a prison welfare fund, but it ensured that Morrissey never had any hassle from the various anti-drug Republican movements who were marching on dealers' homes at the time and sometimes attacking them. In truth, though, it helped make him even more of a target for the Gardaí once they set their sights on him. At the Sunday World, we've been keeping a close eye on Johnny Morrissey over the last number of years. And along with his glamorous wife, Nicola, the pair became a prominent present on the exclusive social scene in southern Spain, where they built a mansion kitted out with the life-size statues of Roman gods. Like, this has to be seen to be believed. As we've reported, they set up a luxury drinks brand and sponsored dozens of events and fundraisers, often posing with minor celebrities and posting the photos to their social media. 
It's thought they were living so openly and flaunting their wealth in an effort to pass Morrissey off as a legitimate businessman. But last April, in a stunning move, Morrissey was one of seven men at the apex of the Kinahan cartel that US police targeted with financial and travel sanctions. Others included Christy Kinahan and his two sons, Daniel and Christopher Jr., who've been named in the High Court in Dublin as the day-to-day managers of the cartel. Really, when you, when you think about it in terms of, you, you know, Johnny Morrissey's place in the, in the pantheon of gangsters, he, he's in the elite level. He's one of the top guys, one of the top facilitators who at one stage was, you know, had a reputation as a feared hitman and had made that transformation over the years into this, you know, sophisticated money laundering uh, and, and, and kind of a, a, you know, a vital cog at that level of, of criminality. Unlike Mickey Green, it looks like Morrissey won't be getting his chance to live out the rest of his days in luxury on the Spanish coast. Instead, he's now sitting in a Spanish jail, waiting to learn if he'll be extradited to America, where he could face being sent to prison for the rest of his life. Before Morrissey or Green, there was a guy called David Hook, one of Europe's most successful drug runners. He was a talented yachtsman and he'd began his illustrious career as a cigarette smuggler and first appeared in customs intelligence files in the late 1970s. He then moved on to sailing cannabis from North Africa into Britain and mainland Europe. In the late 1980s, He found himself getting a lot of unwanted attention from Interpol and several European police forces after being linked to a series of intercepted smuggling operations. In 1988, he moved to Ireland from Ibiza, shifting part of his fortune into Irish bank accounts and buying a stunning four-acre plot of land on the shores of Loch Derg near Killaloo in County Clare, where he planned to build a lavish lakeside home. He was able to buy a drink in the local pub in O'Connorloo, and they keep the, all the locals happy with this yarns about this was a mystery Englishman. His brother also joined him, who was an ex, uh, an ex-soldier, and uh, he also was a, <coughs> a helicopter pilot. His brother. Hook saw Ireland as the perfect safe haven for a major drug smuggler. At the time, our coastline was relatively unguarded compared to British and Dutch waters. And all those hidden inlets on the south and west coasts worked brilliantly for smuggling. Also, there was no legal process in place back then to seize assets belonging to criminals. So there was little risk of him losing his money to clever lawyers working for the state. Just like Green and Morrissey, he had made no attempts to hide his wealth. And while he was here, deeply tanned and with a passion for flashy jewellery, he drove a classic Morgan sports car and told his new neighbours and acquaintances that he'd made his money from various business enterprises, including manufacturing wheelchairs. With another house in Dublin, two homes in Ibiza, and a restaurant in Portugal, Hook had been living a charmed life and was considered one of the UK's luckiest criminals. Despite being on the customs and excise radar for more than a decade and intense interest in his activities from Interpol and police forces across Europe, he'd always managed to keep one step ahead. While living here in Ireland, he worked hard at trying to convince locals that he was a legitimate businessman. But it seems that he was a better drug lord than an entrepreneur. And there was a pretty funny episode where he invited potential investors to a demonstration of a new model of wheelchair that his company was making. But the prototype broke down after a few minutes, leading to a witty headline in a local newspaper. 
Lack of funds cripples wheelchair venture. For almost five years, he lived here in relative anonymity. Then his extraordinary luck took a sharp downturn in 1993, when his yacht, the Brime, was seized off the coast of Kerry, laden down with drugs worth up to 20 million euro. Hook had bought and refurbished the 65-foot catch some years earlier and sent it to Morocco to pick up its massive cargo of cannabis. Another yacht, travelling from Wales, was supposed to meet it off the Kerry coast to pick up the drugs and then land them here in Ireland before transporting them to the UK. But the brime had been spotted by French authorities and its voyage towards Ireland was being monitored. And in the meantime, the yacht from Wales had pulled into Balneskellig's Bay in Kerry for repairs, from where the crew contacted Hook at his home in Clare asking for his help. He travelled down to meet them. Sharp-eyed locals contacted the Guardi about the men on board the yacht, who they felt were acting sort of suspiciously. And when the boat was boarded by Guardi, they arrested the crew members after they found a small quantity of drugs on board. But they also arrested Hook, who they suspected was connected to the drug-laden brime yacht. They'd no evidence. They questioned him for hours, but got nothing and so had to release him. And within a day or two, he fled his home in Clare and was on a flight to London. On the same day he made his escape from Ireland, the Brian was successfully intercepted by the Gardaí off Loop Head using the naval vessel, the Ellie Orla. The four members of the Brian crew were each jailed for 10 years and in court, a Garda said one of them had refused to reveal the identity of the Brian's owner because he was afraid of being shot. Hook had gotten away again, leaving most of his possessions behind him. But three years later, in the very same month that Cab was set up, Hook was arrested again, this time off the coast of Cornwall on a yacht called the Fata Morgana, which was loaded down with 10 million euro worth of cannabis. David himself was arrested in the English Channel, along with a number of other English criminals and European criminals by UK customs, and they were in the process of transporting a large amount of cocaine from Europe into England on speedboats. And it was one of the, it was one of those nights where law enforcement officers were risking their lives in arresting them. It was a highly dramatic sting operation involving undercover British custom officers masquerading as drug gang members and a tugboat that sank because of bad weather and the weight of the drugs. But most importantly, Hook's luck had finally run out and he was sentenced to 14 years in jail. And while his conviction and imprisonment were a huge coup for the British authorities, they were also a big cause for celebration among the Gardaí, who'd questioned him about the brime in the first place, but it had to let him go. Cobb secured a High Court judgment against Hook for €570,000 in unpaid tax and interest, and that was just for the years 1992 and 1993. He fought them all the way from his prison cell, but he lost his house when his properties and lands were seized in default of the payment. Considering how much cannabis he was caught with, it does make you wonder how much he actually got away with smuggling in through these shores during those years he lived here. Indeed, the mind boggles as to how much drug money must have been made by the men who came here to do business. Jan Hendrik Eipelaar was another one, a drug trafficker from the Netherlands who bought Lashnacree House just outside Sneem in County Kerry in 1991. From memory, it had 14 bedrooms in it, with an, an island as a front garden. With 20 acres, 
tennis courts, a gate lodge and its own private island. He got it kind of for a bargain at £300,000. And he lived there quietly for a year, where it was assumed he was a, a wealthy Dutch expat who kept himself to himself. Again, this was a, a major drug trafficker who was based in the Netherlands, controlling the largest methadone factory, I think it was, reduction in, meth- in Holland. But in 1992, he disappeared, and locals were later stunned to learn that he'd been jailed for drug smuggling. Gardy believe he bought the property to use as a European base with his newly acquired island, providing a useful landing spot for illicit cargo. He was released from jail in 1997 and made one trip back to Sneem. Unluckily for him, Cab was well established at that point and his property was seized and eventually sold for 1.2 million euro. And again, it was a very successful operation. Would have been unable to, Cab would have been unable to take action against it without the cooperation of the Dutch police and other international forces who were aware of this man's activities. Among this notorious coterie of dubious short-term residents was our old pal, Mickey Green. Written by Jenny Friel, produced by Ian Mullaney, and edited and narrated by me, Nicola Talent, this is a three-part Crime World special. The Life and Times of Mickey Green. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.